Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A roadmap for David Johnston. Are lower interest rates on the way? Many Canadians have the bank account blues. Learn about an e-petition for asylum seekers helping victims of the Turkey earthquake. And our eating habits need to get better. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Do you believe special rapporteur David Johnston will call for a public inquiry in the election interference fiasco. It's a yes or no question. 73% right now saying no. 27% say yes. You can send me a text on this. 905-645-3221. Or shoot me an email, rick at 900chml.com and share your thoughts on whether or not you think David Johnston will indeed call a public inquiry. We heard from the Prime Minister on this. Obviously, he's the one who appointed Mr. Johnston to this role. And I'm actually, you know, pleased to contrast the approach that we've taken, which is uh, with terms of reference uh, for the rapporteur that's going to be coming out later today, people will see uh, that there is an expert process that will dig into this in a nonpartisan way. And people can contrast this with the kind of uh, political circus that uh, Mr. Polyev is trying to generate. Let's dive into this with Peter Grafe, professor of political science at McMaster University, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Peter, good morning. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Well, we finally have a roadmap, or at least David Johnston has a roadmap, and May 23rd is basically the drop-dead date for him to decide whether or not a full public inquiry will be held. Do you get the sense that we're going to go down that route? Uh, well, I mean, I think there's a fair number of indications that that would be, uh, you know, the, the route to follow uh, to ensure public trust and confidence in our elections. Um I mean, obviously, uh, you know, if if he has two months to make that decision, it can't be an open and shut case. But, you know, I think what we've been seeing around the world uh, with a a number of states getting involved in other states' elections, um, you know, the the question is raised about the the quality of uh, the laws and processes that we have in Canada to prevent uh, the impact of that. So it's kind of a situation where I think most people would say it, it would make sense to, you know, shine more light on this. Uh, if only to grow public confidence. There's a lot of hoopla on Parliament Hill yesterday as the opposition parties for days, if not weeks now, have uh, wanted or called on the Prime Minister to uh, allow his Chief of Staff to testify at the Parliamentary Committee stage investigating this matter. And while he finally relented yesterday, Katie Telford is going to testify sometime in April. Why is this an important part of the equation? Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I think it's an important part of the equation for opposition parties who, uh, you know, and especially the official opposition who I think look at, you know, what happens in the United States around uh, mobilizing people on the idea that the election, uh, last presidential election was somehow uh, dishonest and seeing that there might be a way uh, to make that kind of narrative uh, stick in Canada and, you know, getting uh, the prime minister's former chief of staff to testify you know, I think is a way of of really getting the public's attention on this question of whether there was, uh, you know, interference in uh, the 2019 and 2021 elections that, you know, benefited the, the, the governing Liberal Party. So I think, you know, that's a lot of it. I mean, we've seen Katie Telfer already uh, testify twice uh, before parliamentary committees, uh, one around Jonathan Vance, uh, uh, another around the WE, the WE charity, uh, you know, and in either case, I don't think Canadians really remember <laughs> anything that came out of, of her testimony and likely won't out of this occasion as well. But I think just, uh, you know, pulling this in and making it look that somehow the, the prime minister knew something 
you know, when didn't wasn't willing to share it and used it to his advantage is, is all optics that uh, the official opposition uh, things will pay off for them. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Peter Grafe, professor of political science at McMaster University, talking about the latest hoopla on Parliament Hill regarding the alleged foreign interference in our past couple of federal elections. There was a lot of uh, discussion yesterday as there was a conservative motion that was uh, going up for what could have been a confidence vote. And the prime minister said, no, this will not be a confidence vote. And in the end, the NDP sided with the liberals uh, adhering to their supply and confidence agreement. Is that on shaky water with this issue? Yeah, I don't think particularly. Uh, I mean, I think the NDP has an interest in, in pushing this inquiry to be broader than simply looking at Chinese interference. And so there was reasons why they likely weren't going to support the narrower conservative motion, which was just going to be on that and, and not look at other uh, you know, possible sources of interference in our elections. You know, nevertheless, I mean, the NDP does have to uh, maintain some separation from the Trudeau government uh, in the eyes of many. You know, they're too close with this uh, supply and confidence agreement. So to find occasions, uh, you know, where they're taking a different uh, position is is important for them. But, you know, ultimately, in the end here, I think, uh, you know, they don't want to fight this next election uh, over this question of foreign interference, which I think would really make it a liberal conservative a debate. They want to, you know, push it onto a different set of issues around things like, say, dental care and pharmacare. And so I think for them, they want this 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 issue to be managed in a way, uh, you know, that the serious concerns about the integrity of elections are addressed, but where the ultimate issue of the next election is tied more to the social and economic issues that are at the central uh, of their of their platform and campaign. We have one more minute with Peter Gray from McMaster University. This was the first real mention of confidence vote. Are, are we going to get close to this point? Could it happen potentially in 2023? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, we have confidence votes every time that there's a budget or a money bill that goes up. And, uh, you know, so far the NDP has honored their end of the agreement. But as we've seen, you know, in recent months around things like healthcare privatization, you know, they're willing to, to rattle some sabers. And I think as we get into a period where uh, Trudeau's popularity remains quite low, uh, there will be incentives for the NDP to perhaps push Canada into an election on an issue such as health care or pharmacare. Um, you know, alternatively, the Liberals at some point may get uh, fed up with having to keep the NDP on side and, and find some means of engineering their own downfall and getting an earlier election. Great insight, as always, from Peter Gray from McMaster University. Peter, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Peter is a political science professor at Mac and uh, always eager to offer his uh, analysis on some of the big stories uh, locally, provincially, and uh, nationally as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, good news uh, from Statistics Canada yesterday. So the annual inflation rate has fallen once again, this time from 5.9% in January to 5.2% last month. So it's going in the right direction. The question is, does it mean that the Bank of Canada is getting ready to lower interest rates sooner or potentially later? Shannon Terrell is a financial expert at nerdwallet.ca and joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Shannon, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on once again. 5.9% in January, 5.2% inflation rate last month. A pretty big drop. Was that expected? 
You know, inflation has been month over month uh, beginning to slow, and this is a great trend. Um, and we're definitely down from that 8.1% peak that Canadians saw in June of last year. So bottom line is inflation is cooling, but it's happening slowly. And we are still well above that 3% peak that the Bank of Canada aims for. So the the thought is this should be getting lower a little quicker? You know, eventually we are hoping to get closer to that 3% threshold. In fact, the Bank of Canada itself predicts that we should be close to that 3% by the end of this year. So again, it's happening slowly, but we are hoping uh, we will continue this downward trajectory. Many people obviously want to know, with inflation coming down, and if it does hit that 3%, who knows, sometime this year, when does the Bank of Canada start to consider lowering its key lending rate? Any guesstimate on when that could happen? Right. So, you know, we saw how inflation directly contributed to all of the overnight rate hike decisions in 2022. You know, after eight consecutive increases that took our rate from 0.25% to 4.5%, uh, we actually saw that the Bank of Canada held its rates steady during its most recent rate decision on March 8th. Now, will we see another rate hike this year? It's possible, but if inflation continues to slow, you know, these future hikes may not be necessary. So what Canadians should do is wait until April for the Bank of Canada's next rate decision. One of the um, impacts of the latest uh, inflation rates last month was that grocery prices are still uh, very high. Is there any relief in sight here? That's a good question. And, you know, like you said, groceries have been high. We have actually seen double digit increases in food costs for the past seven months. And this is information that probably doesn't surprise a whole lot of folks, you know, if you've set foot in a grocery store. Um, so the reason for the rise in February, you know, we're still looking at supply chain constraints. That's a major factor. Will we see the food prices come down? You know, inflation is cooling. And so in the latter half of this year, we're going to hopefully see those food prices stabilize and then eventually start to ease off. Yeah, fingers crossed on that one. Shannon Terrell is a financial expert at nerdwallet.ca. Joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we talk about the inflation rate dipping from 5.9% in January to 5.2% last month. And you kind of referenced this in, in the potential of another rate hike sometime down the road because if the inflation rate stalls, or dare I say it rises at some point this year, could we see another rate hike? Is that going to automatically trigger um, another move by the Bank of Canada? You know, it's really hard to say. And I know that the the pressure of all of these rate increases has definitely been felt, especially in the housing market. And so I think, you know, the Bank of Canada is wary about uh, pushing that rate any further at this point. Um, so it's very likely we're going to see uh, continue to hold at that 4.5%. Um, again, we can't predict the future, but that's what we hope. Um, and eventually even potentially seeing it come down, but likely not until later this year. So for us, consumers, whether we're at the grocery store or at the shopping mall, what should we be doing to kind of relieve the pressure valve of uh, all these rising costs? Right. You know, high interest rates, elevated inflation. It's super frustrating, especially when it comes to food costs. You know, we need to eat. Um, so one thing that Canadians might consider doing is 
price matching, hunting for sales, using coupons, that's all going to help alleviate some of the price pressure. Um, wholesale shopping or buying in bulk may offer some relief. So, you know, maybe get yourself over to a Costco, see if there are some deals on. And my last suggestion is, you know, maybe consider a credit card that offers accelerated points or cash back for grocery spending. You know, if you're going to spend big at the grocery store, you may as well get a little something back. So uh, check out cards that offer high cashback rates on grocery spending. Are companies doing enough to continue to bring those consumers into their doors? You know, there's been a lot of speculation around that. And especially, you know, the, the words price gouging have, have uh, definitely floated around quite a bit. Um, and especially for Loblaws, we've seen in the headlines quite a bit. Last week, actually, the House of Commons Committee uh, studying inflation spoke to CEOs of Sobeys, Metro, Loblaws, asking them to answer questions around food inflation. I think the major issue here is a lot of this price gouging information is kind of unclear for consumers, which, you know, adds to frustration. But suffice it to say, you know, grocery prices remain high and, you know, there's probably numerous factors that are contributing to the elevated costs. Absolutely. Shannon, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Shannon Terrell is a financial expert at nerdwallet.ca as the inflation rate I think most Canadians, when they saw that number yesterday, 5.2% down from 59 in January, were thinking, all right, we're, we're getting somewhere. I mean, it was 8.1% at the height of things last year, and, the, you know, that's basically three percentage points shaved off. Now, there's been some pain with that, especially if you're in a variable rate mortgage, you have a line of credit, you that, that those interest rate hikes are causing some stress in the household. That is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Really interesting data curated by the Angus Reid Institute and a great article on their website, Bank Account Blues. Oh boy, are they ever talking to us? Half of Canadians say they're worse off than a year ago. Far fewer expect improvement. John Rose, a research associate with Angus Reid Institute, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. John, good morning. How are you? Good. How are you, Rick? I'm okay, although 47% of Canadians, according to your data, say that they are worse off financially now than they were a year ago at this time. Not surprising at all to hear that. No, you look back at the year we had uh, in 2022 and how much inflation was a problem over the last year. Uh, Grocery bills increasing quite a bit. I'm sure everyone's noticed that. Uh, And yeah, with that all with all that in the background, half of Canadians, about 47 percent say they're worse off than a year ago. Uh, And this is a number that's close to a record high uh, that we've seen in kind of our since we've started tracking this data going back to 2010. Uh, Last quarter in December or so, 49% said they were financially worse off than they were a year ago. And that was the highest we had seen. So 47% is right about that same level. Uh, Of interest as well is that few expect any improvements in the year ahead. And in fact, many say they think it's going to get even worse. Yeah, uh, so we kind of asked a pair of questions. So how, how do you feel you've done over the last 12 months financially? Uh, and kind of a more uh, looking ahead one, how do you feel you're going to be doing uh, a year from now? Uh, and 31% say they're going to do worse. Uh, most Canadians, about two, two and five, kind of a plurality say uh, they're going to tread water. They're going to stay about the same. Uh, and one in five expect improvement. Um, looking back, and we've tracked that question as well since 2010, uh, usually people are kind of more on the treading water side. Uh, it's 
kind of rare that people are this pessimistic. We don't typically see that number get that high, but it is it is typically kind of a minority believe they're going to get better a year from now. Most the most people usually say I, I'm going to tread water, but yeah, this this number of people saying worse a year from now is kind of is pretty high as we've seen over the years. And is the most common denominator at least that that pressure point that people just can't get past or really feeling the heat from is inflation. Is that the number one bullseye target for many people? I, I think so. So we we paired this up with a question asking Canadians about, okay, what are your top issues you think are facing the country? And they could pick up to three. Uh, and overall, three in five Canadians say cost of living inflation. That's that's a top issue facing the country. Uh, and we kind of broke it down a bit further and looked at the people who answered, uh, I'm doing worse or I'm doing worse than I was a year ago, and I'm going to do worse in the future. And specifically for those people, seven in 10 say cost of living inflation is, is a top issue facing the country. So they're more likely than other people who are in better financial straits to say inflation is a huge problem. Uh, and I, I think that does kind of speak to how much of a pressure that's putting on people's finances. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is John Rose, research associate at Angus Reid Institute. We're talking about their latest survey of Canadians, and uh, about half of them say they are expecting uh, they're they're worse off now than they were a year ago, and expecting far fewer um, improvements over the next 12 months. You also looked at um, demographics, men versus women, and how they are feeling right now. What did you find there? Yeah, for as far as whether or not they're doing better or worse than a year ago, um, it, it I think kind of gender-wise that's about the same. Uh, but it's I think interesting, like for like looking ahead into the future, young people are kind of always a bit more optimistic on these kind of kinds of questions. Uh, so two and five uh, under thirty-five believe they're going to do better than a year from now, and I think like a lot of people are still in school in that age. Uh, there's kind of I guess, expectations that they're going to kind of improve career-wise. And those kind of factors probably play into it a lot more, whereas older Canadians are a little bit more likely to be pessimistic. Um, and I think, like, you look across the country, too, and there's quite a bit of difference uh, regionally as far as, like, who is kind of doing worse uh, and or who believes they're doing worse over the last year. Uh, those in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan are saying are more likely to say that they've done worse over the last year, though at least two in five in every region in the country say that they, they are worse off now than they were a year ago. Lastly, we have a budget coming up at the end of the month. Um, uh, I would assume that the Liberal government is going to try and highlight some of these pressure points. Yeah, Trudeau kind of, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau came out and said that uh, they're looking to have some affordability measures in there. Uh, one thing I think people are looking at is the ex extension of that uh, GST return boost that they had that I think is set to expire um, in May. So that feels like an area where maybe they're looking at, but I, the federal government is kind of has to tread a thin line. Uh, and a lot of economists have been talking with Christia Freeland being like, please don't spend as much or like try to rein in spending a little bit because they feel like economists feel that if they put this huge federal budget out there, that'll undo all the work that the Bank of Canada has done to try to fight inflation by raising interest rates. So the federal government kind of has to like <laughs> walk along a very kind of narrow line here, a very narrow path where it's like, okay, they want to provide help to Canadians, but they also have to worry about how much their spending can also impact the economy in a lot of ways. Yeah, that is a tricky balancing act for sure. John, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for sharing some insight into this uh, great analysis by the Angus Reid Institute. Well, thanks for having me on, Rick.
John Rowe is a research associate with Angus Reed Institute, and uh, thank him again for joining us here on GMH. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. More than 130,000 Canadians have now signed an e-petition, and it's calling on the federal government to offer asylum to transgender and non-binary people fleeing harmful laws in their own country. Michael Batista is a specialist in citizenship and immigration law with an expertise in the LGBTQ2S plus cases at Batista Migration Law Group. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm fine. Thank you. Good morning. Can you give us a brief summary of how the asylum process works in Canada? Yes. Yeah. I mean, anyone who arrives at Canada's borders uh, technically has the right to claim asylum and claim uh, protection from uh, fears of persecution that they have in their country of origin, as long as they're not blocked by the safe third country agreement that we have with the United States, which forces them to pursue their claims in the United States. Um, So the LGBTQ community has been recognized in Canada as being a group that is capable of accessing these protections in Canada for, for many years. So our country is already uh, offering asylum to this community, but this petition specifically wants the government to allow trans and non-binary people from Western democracies, the U.S. and the U.K., to be able to apply. Can those individuals in those countries not do so right now? Yes. I mean, what we've seen is a rollback um, of certain rights for the trans community in Western democracies, the United States, the United kingdom um, that prohibits them from really fully participating in society. So they've been denied health care for their gender transition. They've been denied the ability to participate, for example, in sports teams that match their gender identity. And this has caused concern uh, from from the trans community in these countries that that uh, these rights will will be rolled back further. Um, and we are actually experiencing in our office an uptick in um, uh, 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 calls for help from the from the trans community in these countries. So they technically absolutely can uh, pursue these claims in Canada, but it's not widely known that they're able to do do this. There's nothing in Canadian law per se that actually explicitly offers trans people the right to seek protection in Canada. There's nothing in international law that does this also. It's really been a, a matter of our judges interpreting the International Refugee Convention in a way that, that offers them this protection. So while the petition actually does aim at something that we already have technically in Canada, it's just not a widely known right. Do Does this uh, group of asylum seekers need to prove that their lives are being harmed in some way? Yes, that's right. They, ha- they have to establish that their fears are justified. Uh, it's not a particularly difficult thing to do, given the fact that there, as I said, in several states in the United States, there's been a rollback of rights uh, with respect to to the trans community. But yes, they have to offer evidence that their government is not able to protect them from the harms that they fear. And I guess on the flip side, Canada can say, hey, listen, if you live in a particular state in which you're um, that state's laws are negatively impacting your life. Why don't you just move to another state? Is that the common kind of um, refrain or, I guess, phrase from Canadian officials? 
Yes, that's right. That's the big obstacle that people face when they are seeking protection in Canada. The question arises as to whether they can move to another part of the country and be safe. And so in, for example, the United States, you do have this polarized situation where there are some states that are actually expanding protections for the trans community, while other states are rolling those rights back. And so the question that will be faced by the trans community, for example, if they're coming from the United States and trying to claim asylum in Canada is, can you not move to another state and and be safe from the harms that you fear? We have another minute with citizenship and immigration lawyer Michael Batista from the Batista Migration Law Group. Um, there were 642 claims for refugee status made by American citizens in 2018. Only two of those were approved. What needs to change to have more people approved to get them into Canada? I mean, that's a good, you know, that's a good question. I think that because of this issue of, you know, whether they can be safe in another part of the country, um, that's kind of the, that's the obstacle for Americans who are seeking protection in Canada. It's not just about, you know, are you facing some harm? It's can, can you do something? Can you move to an area that that will keep you safe? So it's not so much what Canada can do. It's about the objective circumstances in the United States that's preventing more claims from being recognized. It's a really interesting story. And Michael Batista is on the front lines helping those uh, get into this country and, and feeling a lot safer and having a more enjoyable lives. Michael, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Michael Batista from the Batista Migration Law Group. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have so many amazing organizations in this city. Some help people, some raise money and collect items for individuals. Others just make us feel better. They improve our lives. And uh, this one does all that in a nutshell. It's the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association in Hamilton. And uh, it's making some waves in this community because it has collected food and raised some money for victims of the Turkey earthquake and for refugee girls worldwide. You'll learn more about this right now with Zashan Shahid, regional president of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association, who joins us now. Zishan, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you doing this morning? Good. How are you today? Not too bad at all. Where did the idea of this fundraiser and, and collecting food come from? Yeah, absolutely, Rick. Uh, I'm part of, like you said, AMIA, which is Amdia Muslim Youth Association. Uh, and, you know, this food collection, we actually run a, a campaign annually. And it's formed into uh, a title called Million Pound Food Collection Campaign which is for the past few years has been running successfully. And this year, like, again, uh, similarly, we had a million pound food collection. And that's how the idea came is to coming closer and helping community uh, across Canada. So this million pound is run across Canada. Okay, so a portion of what was collected locally is going to earthquake victims in Turkey. Is that how it's working? Yeah, absolutely. So a million pound campaign is across Canada and every city or every chapter that, you know, uh, that we belong to, uh, the guys, the, the young guys that are there are collecting portion of, you know, helping their, their local cause or any of the cause they choose to do, to do so. So this particular earth, you know, refugee girls, uh, we've started, uh, connecting with them a couple of years back and this is the second year in a row being connected with them. And, uh, it's just so obviously obviously happens the earthquake uh happened unfortunately and so these guys supported 
uh, obviously with us as well, collaboration supported uh, the the earthquake in, in Turkey. How much food was collected and uh, when does it get shipped out? It, you know what, as a matter of fact, it's already shipped out. Uh, it got shipped out a couple, about three weeks ago. Uh, I would assume, and uh, the, the media and the report came out for that as well. Uh, and we collected over 65,000 pounds of food uh, for these guys. And, and they're in a larger organization. They're doing much better, obviously. Uh, but the rest of our million food, food campaign is uh, scattered across the board in, in Canada. And is that ca- is that campaign continuous? Is it throughout the year or does it have a specific start and, and end date? <laughs> Uh, you know what? It does run continuous, uh, but the million pound target is about a month and a half. So we try to co- we try to finish that off. But obviously, the collection goes far beyond that, and we keep you know continue our efforts locally as well. Uh, but the million pound particular campaign, uh, we try to target about a month, month and a half. Zishan Shahid is the regional president of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association. Joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Tell us about refugee girls worldwide. Why did you connect with this organization? So we got connected with them a couple of years back. One of our friends introduced and, you know, what's personally to me intrigued, you know, that we could do something. We do we do do as much as we can locally. And that's why the Million Pound Food Campaign came along. Uh, but doing a little bit at a time across the world. And, you know, if you hear their stories, how they're, uh, you know, how they protect these refugee girls, how they identify and protect and also empower displaced girls uh, across the board, uh, across the border, anywhere in Turkey or Afghanistan or any other, you know, th- countries that need, need help. Uh, but this year, uh, unfortunately, like I said, the earthquake uh, happened in, in Turkey so these guys, uh, you know, they're uh, directed their funds towards that cause. There's also going to be a check presentation tonight. How much money has been collected? So we collect in pounds, and that's what uh, uh, the refugee girls uh, give the target as well, in, in pounds of food collected. So it was 65,000 pounds of food. This uh, fundraiser is one of many examples of the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association giving back to the community. How many different things are going on right now, and why is it so important to give back? You know what? Uh, if it's important, you can't say much about it, but everybody's got to do their part. And being connected to your community, uh, so many things are happening. Uh, just last week uh, on Saturday, uh, one of our ch- two chapters combined in Hamilton uh, and Hamilton Mountain as well. Uh, we were at the NN Castor donating blood. Uh, you know, a bunch of guys got together and made appointments and just, you know, as we know, there's shortage of blood as well. Personally, I have an appointment a couple of weeks from now. So there's so many various activities going on uh, with the Amdiya Muslim Youth Association and trying to connect uh, with our local community and keep uh, making the bond. Uh, stronger and stronger. It uh, it is yeah very much a positive news out of what was a uh, a big negative with the earthquake in Turkey. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thanks for uh, representing Hamilton and, and Muslim youth here in the city uh, very well with this fundraiser. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank that you is Zeshan Shahid. He's a regional president with the Ahmadiyya Muslim Youth Association, and uh, there'll be a. A presentation tonight to refugee girls worldwide on the 65,000 pounds of food. That's a lot of food that has already been shipped out, and a nice ceremony will be held tonight. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. March is Nutrition Month. 
You wouldn't know it from my diet plan yesterday. There is new research that shows Canadian eating habits are mediocre and how eating poorly can shave years off your life. Hamilton's nutrition expert, a registered dietitian and a nutritionist, Shannon Crocker, joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Shannon, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me this morning. I'm glad to talk to you, and I'm ashamed to say, but I do have to mention this, that I wholeheartedly agree that our eating habits are mediocre, because yesterday, for example, I had a burger and fries for breakfast, chicken nuggets and fries for lunch, and pizza for dinner. But hey, I also ate four grapes. Shannon, help me out. <laughs> Uh, Rick, you know what? I think you would be along uh, right inside with those people who were, the study found uh, in Canada are eating poorly. Our diet quality overall is poorly. And, you know, what happened here in this in this study is that diet quality was assessed with over 19,000 Canadian adults. Um, they compared data from 2004 and 2015. And they found that even though there was like a slight increase in, in our diet quality improvement, Really, we're still doing pretty poor. Out of an optimal score of 100, we're at 39. Oof. So that's, you know, if you think about it, that's a failing grade. Um, and in particular, Canadians score poorly for intakes of foods that are protective uh, for health, like vegetables, um, fruits, like your grapes, <laughs> and whole <laughs> grains. And um, this research, which is consistent with what we know, shows that vegetable intake has actually declined. We're at only two servings a day. So why is that? Why, why are we not eating more leafy greens and vegetables and, and fruit and whole grains? Yeah. So, I mean, there's lots of reasons for why people aren't eating eating well. You know, people have good intentions. They want to be well. They want to eat healthy. You know, we have a new food guide that came out a few years ago that shows us really it's it's can be simple, half a plate of vegetables and fruit, a quarter whole grains, a quarter lean protein foods. But there's lots of factors for why people might not be eating well, you know? So it could be they don't have time, uh, that foods aren't convenient, they're not accessible to them. There's mental health issues at play for sure. And food affordability, of course, is a, is a, on the minds of a lot of Canadians right now. So what is the impact on our health? I mean, not everyone is going to eat what I ate yesterday every day. Even I don't do that. You know, that's once in a blue moon. But what what is the impact of a day like that if people if that's their regular day yeah well you know what what we eat has a huge impact on health and your overall dietary pattern that regularly includes those low quality foods like not once in a while like you mentioned that can increase risk for disease like heart disease and type 2 diabetes and you know as a dietitian i find this especially concerning because Type 2 diabetes is is on the rise. There's many Canadians with type 2 diabetes. It's closely linked with um, increased risk for heart disease. And so improving your overall dietary quality can protect your health, um, but it's critical if you already have heart disease or type 2 diabetes. So you really need to take that first step and for those, you know, with type 2 diabetes or just looking, you know, for more heart-healthy recipes and, and grocery shopping tips, I recommend a couple of sites. One is uh, a great site I use is www.carttotable.ca. If you already have heart disease, um, type 2 diabetes, or you're caring for someone with those diseases and you want to learn more about the importance of protecting your heart, and um, you can visit the website www.myheartmatters.ca. And so really, you know what, that could be your first step today is finding out a bit more information. Now, the website we should all visit is shannoncrocker.ca as well. What are some of the things we should be doing to, you know, get us to eat a little more healthier regularly? 
Yeah. Okay. So there's some great strategies that I can share, you know, and I think, of course, nutrition is important for everyone. It's especially critical for people living with type 2 diabetes. Incorporating some more heart healthy foods into your diet is is a really important um, thing that we can all be doing. It's especially important if you're trying to manage type 2 diabetes. Um, It will help you to reduce your risk for heart disease. And that doesn't mean, Rick, that you have to have a like a complete diet overhaul or that you have to eat, you know, these foods that have no flavor. So one of the things that, you know, I like to talk about is doing things like adding in more, you know, budget friendly ingredients like whole grains and quinoa and oats and look for kitchen shortcuts. This I think is because people say time is a, is a big concern for them. Um, look to things like frozen vegetables and canned tomatoes. You know, there's stigmas around them, but they're highly nutritious. And think about that plate method. That's is another sort of, you know, tip is that think about half your plate of whole grains um, or starchy veggies half a plate of um, or quarter plate of whole grains and a quarter plate of protein. Think about, you know, sort of your overall intake um, and and focusing in on those veggies and fruits on that plate method. Great tips from Shannon Crocker. More information online at shannoncrocker.ca. Shannon, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me today, Rick. That is Hamilton's nutrition expert, registered dietitian, nutritionist, Shannon Crocker. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.